You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. I always find it better to get the applause before you actually start speaking. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. You may not want to. I mean, you may not want to later, so. It's like my sister. She always thanks everybody for a Christmas present before she opens it. And she's like, well, if I don't like it, at least I said thank you already, so. Well, as Brian mentioned, we are, is this on? You guys good? Volume good? Okay. As Brian mentioned, we are doing this series on uh, the 23rd Psalm, maybe one of the most famous passages you know, you see it in the church offices, and you probably see it in, uh, you know, funeral homes and places like that. And uh, there's a reason that it's in those places, because there's probably no more comforting set of verses in the Bible than this psalm. Um, we're going to study verse 5 today, and the title, there we go, oh, that's small, that's bigger up there, okay, thank you. Um, the Traveling Light series, the title of today's lesson is, uh, is Juggling Act. And I think I have the... Sorry, I don't do this for a living. I sit in front of a computer and I type. So uh, let me... i right, turn it on. Yep, turn it on. Thank you. There we go. Juggling Act. Do you remember these guys? Any of you old enough to remember like the old variety shows from the 70s? These guys would come on, and if you don't know, this was, this was hilarious. These guys would come on, and they'd start spinning plates on top of these poles, and they'd run back and forth, and of course, it's all an act, so they, they've got it timed perfectly to where you're just like, oh, get to that one, hurry, get over to that, and they'd run back and forth, and it was just building all this tension, and I don't know why it was entertaining, really. <laughs> you know, it was before we had big explosions and CGI and all that, so this was it for us back in our day. But, um, you know, we, we relate to this, don't we? We still have this metaphor in our life of running around, keep, trying to keep the plates from crashing. And uh, that's, the, that's really the theme of our, of our uh, study today, um, this whole idea of just our anxiety, our general anxiety that it's all going to come crashing down. And a lot of us live with that in, in you know, big ways every day. A lot of us can block it out for a while, but then it comes rushing back from time to time. But, you know, we see from David in this psalm that he's not really living that way. He's not thinking that way. He sees his life differently. This is the, the verse that we're looking at. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. I just like this picture. This seems like a much better use of dishes to me. You know, this is the table. This is where you just go, this is good. Something good is about to happen here. I can tell. Look at that setting. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's a lovely day. The dishes are ready. Look at all of them. All my friends are going to be there. I just can't wait. This is going to be great. And this is where David is in this psalm. You know, some of the great thing, one of the, the great things about studying the Bible is you can look at the verse and you can dive down, and then sometimes you can just back up and you can look, what's he saying overall? What's the big picture? And as you look at this psalm, there's, there's three different things that came to mind for David. Oops, did that. Oh, there they are. They're up there already. So that, these three little words, maybe you can't see them. Um, 
as you, we look at this psalm, but this is a reflective psalm, right? Brian talked about psalms where, where David or, or Asaph or somebody's crying out and they're in agony and they're grieving or something, but not this one. This one's reflective. This is the, song, the psalm of a man towards the end of his life where he can look back and he can say, you know what, God is really good. I've grieved, but I'm not grieving now. I've been angry, but I'm not angry now. I've been panicked or I've been melancholy, but I'm not feeling that now. I'm looking back at the good that God has done for me. It's also present tense. If you look at the verbs, they're present tense verbs. God leads me. God restores me. God sustains me. God sets a table before me. This isn't past tense. Also, it's reflective, but he's not thinking about what God's done for me in the past. He's saying, this is who God is. This is his MO. This is how he treats people. He leads them beside quiet waters. He, he lays them down in green pastures. He sets a table before us. And this was David's conviction. And, and we know why he has this peace and why we love this psalm, because it just, it's, it's like, this isn't, you know, some of us have stories like, oh, yeah, remember when God did that for me? And, and that was kind of the height of our spiritual world. And, and David says, no, God's doing this all the time. Amen. This is how God is. This is what he's like. And this is an experiential psalm for David. Do you think God ever put him to sleep in a bright green pasture? Do you think God ever led him beside a quiet water? Do you think God ever encouraged him through one of those dark valleys? He was a shepherd. Of course he did. And what I love about this is God actually set a table for David in the presence of his enemies. It really happened. Um, if you read in 2 Samuel, we're not going to look at it. I'll just tell you the story. But 2 Samuel 17, David's the king. His son Absalom uh, is trying to depose him, his king. Absalom gets a big head, you know, gets banished for a while, comes back, gets a big head. He wants to depose David, and he does. And he announces himself king. And David, with, you know, a few of his palace guards and his officials there, read non-warriors, you know, the administrative types, his, his little bit of family that he's got around him, they've got to hit the road. They've got to get out of there before Absalom gets to, gets to Jerusalem, or Absalom's going to kill him. So these guys take off. The king takes off. He's, he's not been on the run for years, ages. And all of a sudden, he's on the run. And he goes, and, and in 2 Samuel 17, we meet uh, these three guys. One of them's name's Barzillai. I just love that name. I had to say it, Barzillai. You've never heard a sermon. Raise your hand if you've heard a sermon on Barzillai before. Okay, so you learned something today, right? We got that. Check, check that box. We learned something today. But Barzillai was this really wealthy guy, and he sets up this, this beautiful table. There's a description of it. I'll read just the description. They brought beds, basins, and pottery items. They also brought wheat, barley, flour, roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, curd, sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. They had reason the people must be hungry, exhausted, and thirsty in the desert. You know, you just love to have friends like this, right? You're on the run, and they say, come on in. Let us feed you. You know, I appreciate our servicemen, our men and women in the Army, in the battle, what they do overseas. The Army is a bureaucratic organization. has a little bit to be desired, right? So this is an MRE. Let me show you what our Army gives our soldiers in the presence of their enemies. This cardboard box, this handsome box, beef roast with vegetables. Does this look like a table that God would set? 
This is the thing they heat it up with. I don't even know how that works. Blackberry jam. That could be good. Here's a fig bar that doesn't bend. This is the one I love. This is not like powdered drink. This is beverage base powder, tropical fruit punch flavor. Really? Really? That's the best we can do, US government? Come on. No, I love the government. I love the army. I believe it. I understand. They're a long way. They got a lot to do. Applesauce right here. Have you seen applesauce packaged like that before? I don't know how old this is. Crackers. Oh, it does bend. Look at that. And oh, they give you a fork and a knife and all that. I'll clean this up later, Brian, I promise. But you know, this is what the army does for you. This is what our soldiers get in battle. And that's what David got in battle. I'd much rather be serving God than serving the army, right? I mean, he had it, he had it good. It, I was encouraged to think about how good God took care of him. But you know what happened with David after he sat down to eat this meal? Um, he had a change of heart. He was on the run. He was afraid for his life. He was out in the wilderness. And because of this meal and some time of reflection on his own, uh, he changed. He wasn't despairing of his fortune anymore. He wasn't feeling sorry for himself. Uh, he got his guys together. He rallied thousands of people to his cause. And he actually went back and defeated Absalom and his army and, and put the coup down and got his throne back. There was something about this time that made a difference for him when he was stressing, when he was struggling with that. The great thing about that is we know what that was. In Psalm chapter 3, and this will be the text for our lesson today. Thank you, Brian. All those dry crackers got me thirsty. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I read the label. I'm not going to do that. I know it's in there. Psalm chapter 3. I'm supposed to do this. There we go. Psalm chapter 3, if you read the title there, look what it says. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So David wrote this as he was maybe after dinner, maybe overnight while he couldn't sleep. But he writes this psalm, and it, it really shows us what he's going through and the difference that what God did physically made for him spiritually. Um, I'm sorry, I got a couple of slides ahead of myself there. Psalm chapter 3, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance and may your blessing be on your people. You know, unlike Psalm 23, this is not one of those calm, reflective psalms, right? I mean, you felt it in verse 7 there, right? Break the teeth of the wicked. Wow, can we really say that in prayer? You know? <laughs> I mean, you hear your mom and your little boy, Johnny, it's not nice to get mad at people. You know, be nice to people that treat you bad. You know, here's David, break their teeth, God, just smash them. I mean, and, you know, just parenthetically, this isn't a lesson on prayer, but this is how we need to pray. 
You know, too many of us, me included, button down, dear Lord, I beseech thee. You know, we, we just, we come up with these innocuous prayers that really don't mean anything. We got we to gotta go from the heart. We've got to speak God. We've got to find God in our prayer. We've got to look for him. And the only way, you can't do that when you're just telling yourself the right answer. You got to process in prayer. And that's what David's doing in this psalm. He's processing. And that's why I want to talk about this with our with this whole anxiety issue, that we've got to process those things in prayer. Too many of us pray. I think uh, Emmy Lou shared it earlier. You know, you pray, but it was all about her. You know, sometimes we just pray and pray and pray. And give me God, give me God, see me God, help me, help me God, help me God. And we don't ever really think about God's side of it, you know. Um, but we've got to process this stuff in prayer. We know what David was feeling. We're going to talk about three things today from this psalm. Okay, here's the three points. What David feared... We're going to look at how he found his peace, and we're going to talk about eating at God's table. And it's the third point that I'm most excited about. So we're going to hurry through the first two and see if we can get, spend some time on, the, on my last one. All right? What David feared. There's two threats, really, in the first couple of verses. Read those again. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? David was threatened physically. He was. He had an army after him. You know, you probably never had an army after you. He had an army after him. He was threatened. But we all face times where we're threatened physically, right? I mean, we've all been feeling it to some level or another with Scott's illness. You know, it's a threat. It feels a threat. Something we love is threatened, and we're anxious. We're, we're on, our, on edge. We don't know what to do with that. Uh, sometimes it's financial, right? You sit down, and you're trying to pay bills, and you're like, uh-oh. You know, it's just not going to work. I mean, I, I, take, I don't know if it's... If you're the one who's responsible for the finances in your household, you feel that a lot. You carry that burden a lot. We feel that threat. Not that, you know, some of it's self-inflicted. Some of it we're just dumb and we're paying the consequences. It's not God's fault. I'm not saying it's God's fault. Um, But so much still rides on this. In our society, you know, if the money doesn't work, it's, it's not like we can go out and just pick fruit off the trees and eat that. Instead, we've got to make this work. We don't live like that anymore. Sometimes it's a social encounter, right? There's so many ways to blow this. I mean, it used to just be if you stayed home, you were fine. But now with Facebook and texting and stuff, you know, you can blow it from the comfort of your own living room socially, right? (laughs) You can be attacked sitting in your own house with some of this stuff. And we feel these threats. She said, what about me? Did you see what was on Facebook? I mean, we we feel those threats, those, those social, those personal threats. We, we have a, maybe just a memory of a bad encounter somewhere. Like, oh, I don't go dancing anymore. No. You know, and I, I don't, frankly. I don't. But, <laughs> but you know, we all have our, our threats there. Um, and sometimes it's our physical safety. You know, I, my gosh, you know, your mom stabbed in your own front yard. Um, that's horrifying. Um, but we see that it's all around us. So we, we relate to David's physical threats. But what intrigued me was the next verse. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So what is that? Who cares? Who cares if somebody says God will not deliver him? Well, if you're a king who's been installed by the will of God, and all of a sudden the the country, the population is saying, we don't think he's God's man anymore, then you're threatened. You know, you're threatened. You're starting to feel it psychologically. David goes from the physical threat to the psychological threat. He goes from a real fear to just an anxiety. They're saying, it's not mine anymore. They're saying, I'm not the man. And I'm sure he's thinking about his life. He's going, 
I've lost my family. My own son is deposing me. He's trying to kill me. I've lost my, I used to be a popular king. David has slain his 10,000. Remember that? I used to be popular. And now I'm on the run. Now I'm out here eating in the wilderness. You know, I used to be a king. I used to, and you know what else he's thinking? He's thinking, now what happened? Who was the last king we had? Oh, yes, Saul. What happened to him? God took him out. It says in scripture that, the, that God tore the kingdom away from Saul because of his disobedience. And so David is thinking, what have I done? Maybe this is the end. I mean, really, I mean, he doesn't know the end of the story yet. Right. You know, what had he done? He'd, he'd slept with Bathsheba, right? In this huge public way. He'd killed his, her husband, Uriah. He'd, you know, more sins than you can count. And David's, it's all crashing back in on him now. He's going, oh my gosh, Maybe this has all been a dream. Maybe, this, maybe, maybe I'm the wrong person. I guess it's over for me. I mean, he is stressed. He is feeling the anxiety. And those psychological threats, those are worse than the physical ones, right? Right? We go from a specific fear to an overwhelming anxiety. You know, Brian shared a couple weeks ago about the skunk, the, the skunk that he avoided by taking two long leaps back to it his, to his, uh, his in, inside the house. You know, fear is a good thing for us, right? I mean, fear helps us when we're in a situation like that. We are, I don't know what the system is in our body, the fight or flight or fight thing, right? It just kicks in. What do they call that, Calvin? Is that your autonomic nervous system? I heard that. Somewhere in my memory, that word came back. There you go. College pays off. Um, (laughs) But, you know, that's good for us. We need that, right? We look up and we're in the wrong lane and, you know, we, we need that. You know, boom, you, you get those resources. You don't even know what you can do. Like Brian talked about leaping two giant, you know, 20 feet or whatever it was in two steps to get away from that skunk. And we need that. It, I mean, it's, it's something in us that calls on all of our resources and it grabs our energy from every part of our body and, it, and time slows down and we think clearly and boom, we do just what we need to do. And it's a fantastic system that God puts in us. But when we live in this world of anxiety, we're doing that all the time. We're running on the red line all the time, and it wears us out, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. It wears us down. Um, Fight or flight is good. Always on is not good, Um, and we're all capable of this, right? None of us are good at isolating all these fears all the time just to the issue. Um, Satan attacks us this way, And, and what Satan really does with this is he threatens our identity, just like he did David. He goes, you're really not who you say you are. You sinned again today. Remember, you committed yesterday. You weren't going to do that anymore, and you did it today. Satan attacks our identity. Instead of, you know, a specific fear, it's like this thunderstorm, big lightning and thunder and pounding and rain, but it passes. And it's sunny again. You're like, whoa, that was scary. That was intense, but it's over. But anxiety is like drizzle. It's like cold January drizzle, right? And it just, it makes our souls moldy. We just, we're just like, oh, make it stop. We get discouraged. We get depressed. David had to be asking himself these questions. He's like, here it is. Here's the end. I blew it, and it's over. Um, So this psychological threat, ask yourself, what's gripping you? What are you chewing on? What are you having a hard time letting go of? We've all got those things, right? You know, God, I'd be a lot closer to you if this problem would go away. God, I'd take more time to pray. I could be a lot happier if 
this would go away. And most of the time, the this is a big, huge thing in our mind, but it stems from maybe one little event, something that somebody said, maybe a bad experience we had, maybe we tried something and failed, but now it's become this mountain of anxiety, and it grips us. So this is what David fears. You know, I wrestle with this. I, I'm like, wow, what, what is, what, what, what specific fear or hurt do you have that has and I'll use this word sensitively, metastasized into this, this anxiety that has crept over your whole spiritual life. God wants us to be so joyful and so close to him and so confident in him. And yet we have this anxiety that, that weighs us down. We have this fear. I want you to identify what that is. You may not get it perfect, but you know in the neighborhood. What is that right now? Just think about it. Grab hold of something, put a name on it, Write it down in your notes, because we're going to drag it through this process that David went through, and we're going to see if we can make it better, all right? Look in verse 3. Point number two, how David found his peace. Now, I love this in verse 3. He says, he starts verse 3 with the word we all want to hear when we're struggling, but, right? It's bad, but it gets better. It's a trouble, but God can fix it. I'm scared, but God is bigger than all this. So he starts the right way. He says, but you, Lord. He turns the focus from himself to what God can do. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my, uh, lifts my head high, I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me from every side. David found peace by seeing God, not just as a shield, but a shield all around him. It's hard to see in this picture, but that slide in the background there, and you'll see it on the next one, is, uh, it's, it's from Vikings, you know, the, the, the TV show that's out, Vikings. All those, all those little wooden circular shields, but when they put them all together, it's a shield all around them, right? Nothing gets in. And God is like that shield all around us. He's not just a little thing we hang on our arm. He's all around us. Interesting thing about shields. You don't get issued a shield to sit comfortably in your house. When do you get a shield? You get a shield when you're going forward into battle. And that's how God's protection works. If you're sitting at your home, sitting at home, chewing on your fingernails, worrying about your problems, you get no shield. You got to get in the battle. You got to be moving forward. You got to be following God. You got to be listening where he's calling you. Some people ask, why do we have this pain at all? Why the enemy? Why, why can't just God just route the enemies and we just have a table? I like the table. Let's do the table. You know? It's a good question. It's been asked for a long time, right? Especially, you know, you've been all, all been through periods in your life where you lose somebody or you go through a really hard thing and you're just like, why? Why does this have to happen? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this problem of pain. He says, God who has made us knows what we are and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it Seek it in him as long as he leaves us any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interest but to make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible sources of false happiness? We need the affliction to find the affection. We've got to have that. That's the only way to find God. Quickly, three things. David saw God's glory. God was his glory. You know, sometimes we think of our own glory. Sometimes our anxiety is based on protecting our own glory. 
David said, no, God is my glory. God is the lifter of my head. God is going to lift me up. God is going to take care of me. God is going to, I mean, who, who says you lift up your head? It's when you're down, right? Pick your head up, boy. It's going to be okay. Come on. Look forward. Let's see what we can, there's God lifting your head. David saw that God answered when he called. Where does it say he called from? His holy mountain, right? I thought about this a little bit. The holy mountain in scripture is described as this thunderous, scary, dark, overwhelming place where in Hebrews it says the people beg, don't send any more messages from the holy mountain. We can't stand it anymore. You know, we're, we're, stop, uncle, stop. You know, and we, that's where we want our answers from, right? We want God to do something big and booming and wipe out our enemies. You know, there's another mountain, right? There's the Temple Mount that David was probably thinking of where sacrifice and worship were done. And there's another mountain of the cross. You know, God says, I'm going to answer you, but I'm not going to answer you from that big, scary, loud thing that you want. I'm going to answer you from the promises I made to you at the cross. I'm going to answer you from my covenant. And there's a story in Genesis 15, if you want to read it, about how God proved that he was going to keep his covenant to Abraham. David was in that place. The words are very similar. Uh, that, that, that place uh, in Genesis 15, do not, be afraid, Ab- do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward, your glory. I bet David's thinking of that. David's asking himself, how can I know that I'm going to be okay? And he remembers, God promised Abram, I am shield and your very great reward. Finally, it says that God sustains us. I go to sleep and I wake up. There's so many good verses. Psalm 127.2, God grants sleep to those he loves. Isaiah 55, he talks about what really nourishes us and that we can have it. It's what David knew. It's how he got his groove back. It's how he got his faith. He just goes, oh, yeah, it's about God. He's doing this stuff to help me. He bestows this glory on me. Do you have that kind of peace? I want you to think about your thing from the last point, and I want you to drag it through these three points. Whose glory am I really looking for? Whose glory? Have I really looked for God's answer? Not the answer that I want, but the answer from his covenant, what he's promised me. And if I really believe that God's going to sustain me, no matter what the circumstances are, that the real food to eat, and the, real th- the real wine to drink, and the real sleep is going to come from the Lord. I think this is what David did. Now, if we ended the sermon here, Some of you are saying, hey, that's a pretty good idea. Let's do that. Sorry. I got one more point. But if we ended the sermon here, we have a nice story about David and what he did. It's kind of like chicken soup for the soul, right? It feels good. We like it. But God's not about chicken soup, right? God's about what? What what What's the imagery we have for God? Oh, there's the shields. We'll get to this verse in a minute. But look at that, Okay. That's a feast. Now, you may not be a Middle Eastern food fan. I am. So I put that up. If you need to go, Dave, if you need to do like steak and potatoes, that's fine. If you need to do like sushi bar, you know, that doesn't end, do that. Whatever you need to do here, go ahead and substitute your own mental picture. But God describes what he gives us as a feast. And I want to talk about this feast. And Brian and I have been talking a lot about these two sermons. And, and have, he gets to do uh, stuff on the future in heaven next week. And I was a little jealous, so I was kind of throwing him, you know, points that I would make, just in case he wanted to use them. Um, Verse 8 of the psalm says, the Lord brings blessing and deliverance. We get to eat at the table of God. And if you look through the scriptures, you're going to find that the scriptures push on us 
a certain kind of language to get us to, to, to grasp this. They force on us this sensory experience language. Taste it. Experience it. It's a feast. We can relate to this. We've all been at that table. And we just go, remember, you're sitting there and you're just going, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. 1 Peter 2, crave pure spiritual milk because you've tasted the Lord is good. Yeah. Isaiah 25, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. I mean, why this language? You know, the, the Greek society at the time, um, uh, the time of the New Testament was of the mindset that everything physical was bad, right? Only the spiritual mattered. And, and we've been fighting that ever since. You know, we kind of have this feeling that anything physical is bad, but, but, the, but the Bible is pushing on us. I've been reading a guy named uh, Timothy Keller on this, and he's, he's, there's so many great ideas he presents about how God, the Bible just pushes this language. He forces us to deal with the fact that heaven is not going to be this ethereal place where we float around and play harps on clouds, but it's going to be a real place. I mean, when Jesus was raised, was it an ethereal float-around body? You know, some, some Star Wars cartoon picture? No, it's... it's, it's a real body. He ate fish on the beach, right? I mean, we're going to be raised to this newness. And all these little feasts and all these little great moments, watching a baptism, bringing home your newborn, having lunch with friends, they're little glimpses of how great it's going to be. They're just little touch points of heaven. And Jesus, Jesus wants us to know that. I'm going to tell you one more story. We have to move ahead quickly here. I'm skipping a few points. Ask me later. This is a really great lesson, okay? <laughs> Maybe I'll do it at midweek. I get to teach midweek, so maybe I'll finish it up at midweek. John chapter 2. Let's just talk about this for a second. What, is, what does God do to make this point that it's more than just thinking through these things and feeling good about it? That it's about a real feast. That it's about something you can taste and touch, and it's going to be better than anything you've ever had before. You know, I drove a few days ago. I was up in the, on the mountains in Northern California, and I was driving, and I just came over this hill, and there's this lake at Donner Pass, and there's mountains, and there's trees, and I just, I pulled over at one of those little viewpoints, and I said, God, if I didn't pull over, I would be offending you. This is so beautiful. I just have to take this in, and we've all gone through those things. We've all been at that place, and that's God saying, heaven is waiting. Heaven is out there. Here's Here's a taste. Here's the trailer, so you come to the theater. I mean, here it is. Come, come, check it out. And we forget that. And David knew that. When he saw that table in the desert, he's going, yeah, God is good. Yeah, God can take care of my problems. So anyway, John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding, right? What does it say at the end? I'm just going to skip to the end there. The verse there, John 2, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee uh, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is a parable. It's not just a real story. It's also a parable. It's a metaphor for what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus do at that wedding? How many gallons? Six big jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. Somebody do the math for me, okay? That's a lot. I think I figured out. It's like 12 cases, right? I mean, there's plenty of wine. (laughs) And was it good wine or bad wine? It was the best wine they'd ever had. Jesus, this is, it's not just a story. It's what he came to do to tell us what it's all about. I'm going to make a banquet for you. 
What's his the second coming called? What, what are we, we are the bride of Christ. What does that mean when he comes again? It's a wedding day. It's a party. It's a banquet. By the way, I had to show you this picture because it is the biggest picture by size, the biggest picture in the Louvre in Paris. And it's a picture of Jesus at Cana at the wedding. I just thought it was cool that it was the biggest picture in the Louvre. Of all the artwork there, of all the scenes that are depicted, the biggest one. And that little person, I don't know who that is, but that thing is huge. That thing is huge. And they said how big it was. It was in meters, so I just, I lost it. I didn't really understand it right away. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it's huge. I mean, this is what we're waiting for. This is what Jesus came to deliver. You know, Jesus at that wedding, I'm going to just do this Wednesday because it's too good to miss. But, but let me just suffice to say this. Jesus went to that wedding to show us what it's all about. Jesus went to that wedding to turn water into wine. And, you know, sometimes we wonder, we, we, we go, we say to ourselves, well, Mary talked him into his first miracle. He didn't really want to do a miracle there. That's why he said, you know, mom, why do you concern me? If you, if you know the story, you're familiar with that verse. And we think, oh, he wasn't ready to really reveal himself and do the big show until later. And he got, you know, he got his thunder stolen by his mom. You know, that's not it at all. David's, uh, Jesus is at this wedding. Okay, if you're single and you're at a wedding, what are you thinking about? Your own wedding, right? And if you're married and you didn't have a really good wedding or maybe not a struggling in your marriage, you're thinking, oh, I'd love to do this over again. You're thinking about your wedding. What's Jesus thinking about? He's thinking about his wedding. Can you imagine what he's thinking about at his wedding? Can you imagine? He's looking around these guys going, they're going to be there. He's thinking about, we pray, he prayed for us, right? Gary read that in communion. They're going to be there. He's thinking about what's to come. What a glorious wedding to come. He's also thinking about this. He's thinking about what it's going to take for him to produce wine at his own wedding. You see, the wine we take in communion represents what? The blood of a new covenant. And so Jesus, while, while, while all, every, all the guests at the party are drinking the best wine they'd ever had, Jesus is drinking grief. He's drinking sorrow. He's, he's saying, this is so hard for me because I know what's coming. He launched his ministry with this miracle for a reason, to help us understand. He tells his mom, not, I don't want to do a miracle right now. He says, my hour has not come. What does he say in Luke at the, at, at, you know, at, at, towards the end? He says, God, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very hour I have come. See, Jesus knew at the, Can at the Cana wedding, it wasn't his hour, but it was starting. It was coming. And he knew what it was going to cost him. And so he makes it real to us. And so we, we sit at this wedding and we drink this feast. And you know, the bridegroom got all the credit. Bridegroom, the, the master of ceremonies comes to him and says, this is the best wine I've ever had. This, this is the greatest thing. How, how you save this to the end? And, 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 and Jesus never gets the credit. You know, that's a metaphor too. We get to go to heaven. We get all the credit for what Jesus did. We get all the grace. And nobody, nobody, nobody says to us, well, I know you didn't really create that wine. They say, nope. Come on in, good and faithful servant. Come on in. Don't care what you did. You're coming in. 
See, Jesus wants us to understand that the table in the, in the wilderness is a real thing. When we sit down with our anxieties and our troubles and our challenges, it's, a re- it, 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 it's, it's, it's real enough, but what's so much more real is the, the banquet that's coming. And David could see that. David could visualize that. He could see that. I have to show this picture just because I'm a proud dad. Here's the wedding I'm more familiar with. This is a great day. Some of you were there. This was a fantastic day. Beautiful day, beautiful food and setting. I didn't mess up my lines. and It was just a really great day, you know. Um, but why? What does that say there? Jesus says in Luke 22, and we'll close with this, when he's at the table, the Lord's Supper, another table, another metaphor for what he's doing for us, and he's passing around the bread and the wine. He says, I'm doing this so that you can eat and drink at the table in my kingdom. See, God doesn't just set a table for us to get us through our daily anxiety. He's not just trying to help us out with a problem here or there. He's not just the, the 911 of, of you know, life's challenges. He's saying this is all just a prelude. There is something so much better coming. And everything I do from the beginning of my ministry to the end of it is trying to get you to realize there's something better coming. So what are you doing with your problems? Are you so focused on them that you're forgetting about the wedding? Are we so caught up in the day-to-day grind that we've forgotten to see Jesus this way? You know, no real big challenge here except that I want you to see Jesus this way. We could talk about all the things that happen after a wedding. Right? There's a reception. He made wine. Okay? I'm not talking about drunkenness or alcoholism. Those are horrible afflictions that we struggle with. But he made wine. He wanted us to be intoxicated in his love. We, he wanted us to be so joyful. What does Ephesians 5 say? It says, I want you to understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. This is what God wants for us. We've got to see these anxieties, these burdens that keep us hunched over and moping through life are not what God wants. We've got to let this stuff go. David saw it at the table. He prayed through it. That's how we're going to get through it. We've got to process this stuff in our prayers and our relationship with him. But I want you to know that Jesus has got this prepared for you, for all of us. Why would we not, choose, why would we not take, up, take that up? Why would we not go there? Why would we not follow that? Right? We forget. You may not be a Christian, you may wonder if you're a Christian. You may realize you're a Christian who's not doing what Christians ought to do. It doesn't matter. Come to him. There's a place for you at the table. You got to come in. You got to leave your baggage at the door and you got to walk into the feast. You got to come find him. You got to come. But he'll let you in. And there's a place for you. You know, we walk around like, oh, it's over. I'm never going to make it. <laughs> you know, we get, we get hung up. But God says, no, there is a place for us. There is a banquet waiting for us. There is a table filled with, this is just the Middle Eastern table. Let's go over there to the Southwest table, right? And then we'll go over there to the rib table, and then we'll go back over there to the, you know, the sushi, bacon table, right? Probably two or three tables for bacon, right? That's why, you know, God didn't want the Jews to eat pigs to save more of them for us when we get to heaven, right? So, I mean, that's bacon table, right? I mean, that's waiting for us. Why are we not going there? 
Why are you not going there? I want to challenge you in your relationship with God. That's really what this psalm is about. This is a psalm of contentment. David says, I lack nothing. I am not in want. I have, no, I have everything I need. Brothers and sisters, this is where God means us to be. Let's not be afraid to go there. Let's not be afraid to think this way. Okay? Let's not be afraid to leave the baggage at the door and enter into the feast of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for always providing your presence when we're threatened. Father, we don't want to make light of the things that threaten us. They scare us, and they're hard for us. And yet, God, we know that you're there with us. We know that you're going to take care, and we thank you for that. Father, give us an understanding of those experiences in our life where we think we've seen a touch of heaven. And help us to think about those things as just a snippet of what it's going to be like. And to latch on and to count those things and catalog them in our minds so that we never forget what waits for us in heaven. Father, help us to see Jesus in a new light. Help us to see him as the Lord of the feast. As the one who makes the best wine. As the one who invites us in. As the one who prepares the table. And as the one who has prepared a place a room especially for us. God, help us to see Jesus that way. Father, we know that all this is only possible because of what he did on the cross. And we thank you for that, and we ask you to help us to walk away from here today encouraged by your love for us and your vision for our future. Help us to leave our anxieties at the door. Father, they're real. We don't want to make light, but we ask you to help us trust you in such a way that they all fade away is temporary, the, the, the temporary things that they are. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.